You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and I am extremely, very, very excited about this week's episode. I'm interviewing Randall Poster of Search Party Music. He's a music supervisor in film and television who helps directors like Wes Anderson and Martin Scorsese put together the soundtracks for their films. I talked to him about building scenes around songs, about traveling the world to retrieve obscure recordings, and the delicate, very delicate art of maybe hinting to directors that their favorite track doesn't belong in their movie. The conversation was a real joy, and I hope that you have fun listening to it. What's your name, and what do you do? My name is Randall Poster, and I work as a music supervisor on films and television shows. What exactly is a music supervisor? A music supervisor, the way I define it, is the person who works with the director to help them define and then execute a musical strategy for their story and film. So does that mean putting together a soundtrack or figuring out if there's going to be a score? Well, I think it can include those things. I mean, really what it means is sort of how you would use, primarily it starts out as where you're going to try to use songs in the film and really how the musical element is going to either help render character or help render a time period, um, where in the script music plays, um, and, and, and then really dealing initially with any music that would be filmed or anything that's on camera. So you're sort of getting to live out that music geek dream where you think, how would I make the music video for, you know, this song I love or... Well, I, I think it's 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 a little bit deeper than that in the sense that, you know, th- that music can work as an, a story element and hopefully in the, in the best scenarios, the music is a an element that is that is coloring character and helping uh, the director tell the story in time and place. And how long have you been doing this now? I've been doing it. I think it's all it's it's more than 25 years, I think. Yeah. And who are some of the directors who you typically work with? Uh, well, I, I work with a lot of directors, but I would say I'm probably best known for working with Wes Anderson. But other longtime collaborators uh, include Todd Haynes, Todd Phillips. Sam Mendes, Martin Scorsese, uh, Harmony Corrine, uh, and and some others that I'll think about as we continue talking. So all the directors who people actually like listen, watching their mo- movies for the music, you, well, you, you I tend think to work so. with them. I mean, I, you know, I think that that's, that's sort of helped me is that, you know, their insight and and direction has sort of made for, I think, some memorable music moments and and really they those directors really keep music as a priority in their in their filmmaking strategy and so they they plot it very well and I think use it with care but also I think they they use it boldly how do you get into this line of work where did you start well I really when I when I started doing this it really didn't really seem like a a career proper career destination and so I guess like it sort of came about somewhat haphazardly. I'd always been a, a music lover and a, and a moviegoer. And what happened was, is I graduated from college really without any great professional direction. And in my effort to forestall law school, a friend and I, we wrote a script about a college radio station. And ultimately, we, we, we developed it at the Sundance Institute and then ultimately made the movie. It was called A Matter of Degrees, and it came out in 1990. I wonder how many great 
creative projects were launched specifically as an effort to avoid law school. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would think probably a bunch, yeah. And so that was, so you, you did your own movie. Yeah. And then that was your entree into the well, music. Well, that was sort of at the moment where what they had been calling college radio became alternative music. Okay. Um, and by virtue of our storyline, we worked with a lot of bands and artists that we knew to sort of make new songs. And we did a soundtrack. And while the movie had negligible commercial impact, people responded to the music and, and, and it sort of dawned on me that really what I wanted to do is I wanted to work with great filmmakers, film directors. And I realized that if I had focused on, on the music, that that would be a great point of contact. And, and that's how it, how it worked out. Was music supervisor a job at that point in the way it is now? I certainly had predecessors, you know, I guess right before or while I was in college or right right around that time in the in the 80s there was the the John Hughes movies and there were there there were a bunch of films that had a sort of a pop music motor, you know, and so I think it was emerging as as a vocation. I mean, in the past I think sort of the studios had what they called musical directors, but I guess it sort of developed as American independent cinema was developing during this period. So I think that that may have cleared the path for that role, you know, that cinematic, that, that role, because there wasn't really any kind of studio armature that was supporting a filmmaker in their musical efforts. Interesting, because, you know, I, I had to imagine there was someone, you know, making the choice to put the sound of silence in The Graduate, you know, back in the day. Well, there... I, I think, you know, I mean, that one in particular, that one particularly, I mean, I think, again, these these... The, the, largely music inspiration, it comes from the, the director, you know, and as as films became sort of less less studio driven, the auteur, the American auteur, the world auteur emerged. And so I think those people were the ones who sort of decided to utilize popular music in a way that maybe it hadn't been done as aggressively. I mean, certainly, you know, you look at, for instance, Elvis Presley's movies. I mean, those are obviously were driven by popular music and musical iconography. But I think probably it, it was as as production was beginning to be done more independently, it probably cleared the way for someone to play the part of music supervisor. It made space for people like you. Yeah. So you're one of probably the only music supervisors out there who's actually had a box set released of your soundtracks, correct? Uh, is this the Wes Anderson box set? Yeah, I think, I think that's still to be done. That's still on our to-do list. It's actually something that I think is probably now looking like it's going to come out in the fall of 2019. It, okay. But then the, 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 in terms of gathering all these things together, it, it proved to be a little bit more complicated. So now we're looking to do it 2019, built around, um, I'll reveal it here, a big live music event that, that Wes and I are planning. Oh, very cool. So I was going to ask, how did you and Wes start to partner together? Um, well, Wes and I met when he was finishing Bottle Rocket, and and somebody, just a mutual friend, introduced us and thought we would we would get on and and we sort of the way i'd say it is that you know we met and i would say we we started working that afternoon really on on getting some things together and talking about music and music and movies and and so um it's been you know 20 years since we since we started together and that was after he had done finished that movie entirely. He or? was finishing it. Oh, yeah. and were and you so coming he, in to help with the music? He, yeah. At that well, point? I came in to sort of help him do a soundtrack album. That was okay. sort of how we. That was what was there for me to do at that moment in time. 
Okay. And so then we then we started pretty much working on Rushmore right right at that moment. So how does your process with him work? Are you there at the beginning of the film? Or are you coming in and watching a version of scenes without any music and figuring out what goes? How? Um, I think that really that that one of the benefits that we have in in terms of creating our musical the musical element in the films that we've worked on together is that we we sort of do a lot of work between the movies. And so, I mean, I first read Rushmore, you know, and we started gathering the songs before we started shooting the movie. I must had very sort of strong ideas about, you know, what he wanted to do. Rushmore, I think the inspiration was that Wes had been kind of inspired by the the music and the optics of the British invasion. You know, all these angry young men in sort of neat suits, yet making this music that was very kind of anti-establishment. And so those were musical elements that we gathered and then plotted. Really, in our process, I would say that, you know, Wes will have an idea where we'll, we'll come together with an idea and then I go and gather all of it for us to sort through. So whatever the, whatever the inspiration is, we then sort of go out and collect everything that might fall into that category or show some of that inspiration. And then we sort of take it from there. So I would say that really in the, in the movies that we've done together and the soundtracks we've done, a lot of the work is done before we start shooting the movie and before actually b- before there's even a script. Oh, really? Yeah. He he's writing the script from the musical moments. Well, in his I, head, I think or? that or, or they sort of or they, they they sometimes have parallel lives, you know, or and and because music can be so complementary or elemental, the musical element sort of tends to emerge as the story is emerging. That makes kind of intuitive sense to me, though, because sometimes you're listening to a song and that that brings a mood and a vibe and a scene to you know, into yeah. play in your head. Yeah, or or even it's. You know, or sometimes it's just a musical strategy, you know, or, or or a musical through line or a way to sort of plot the story with a kind of a, a song companion, you know. So he tells you, I want a kind of a British invasion theme or you want music to soundtrack a, a trip through India for Darjeeling Limited. And, and you go out and search for that. How much are you bringing back? How much are you sorting through? Well, again, I, 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 bring, I try to bring back all of it. You know, all of it. All of it. Just comprehensive. Yeah. I try to be comprehensive. And again, it's sometimes his, 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 his instinct or his intuition is, is, is sometimes it's not as broad as that. You know, I mean, for instance, I mean, just going back to talking about Rushmore and the British invasion, it wasn't just like the British invasion. It was, it was, it was, there were specific songs that he referenced, particular artists. And so, you know, the, the, the web of that or extending that is, is sort of, it, it, it helps you kind of hunt and gather. Um, for Darjeeling, the, the, and again, I wouldn't say that the process has been the same in all of the movies. I think that, Say, for instance, Darjeeling, Wes had this notion that he wanted to use the film music that had been created by and for Sachet Ray. And so, so and some of those and 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 by virtue of that, we, we, we dug into some of the films of of Merchant Ivory. And then it was sort of up to me to gather those materials that weren't as easily accessible as others. And these are like classic Bollywood films. Oh uh, no, they're gonna... they're they're not Bollywood films. Sachet Ray was a was a dramatist. You know? Okay, I mean there was a little bit of a hint of a Bollywood element in one of the Merchant Ivory films, 
But um, that music, it wasn't sort of like you couldn't go out and just simply buy like the complete Sachet Ray box set, you know. So we had to do, you know, we had to reach out to the the estate and the foundation. And then ultimately I had to go to Calcutta to sort of get the music or we, 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 we convinced them to transfer previously unreleased pieces from the master tape to dad and then brought those home and put those on CDs. And so this was like a salvage operation. Yeah, it, it was, it was interesting. I, mean, I, I don't know that we, I, I think that for the most part, we used the pieces that we had gathered earlier in a more conventional way you yeah. know, that were on records and CDs, but we just wanted to know what it was that we hadn't heard really. And, and again, I think that that's it, the completest instinct. Yeah. And, and also just the feeling that there's something that if you pursue logic, musical logic to, to the outer limit, that there will be some kind of surprise or there'll be some kind of reward for that or there'll be some that, that, that pursuing the logic will come to bear on the film in one way or another. And, and a case in point is that in Darjeeling Limited, there's a, there's a flashback scene where the, where the boys go and they're on their way to their father's funeral and they, they stop in an auto shop to get a car that he'd left there. And so we, we, we were working on the auto shop and that was sort of, you know, we were, we're taken out of our kind of primary journey and and flashback. And we were trying to figure out what to use in that environment. And Wes had this notion he, he wanted to use a classical piece or something that had a classical element, a European classical element. And from doing the research, you know, I'd said, well, you know, Sachet Ray, his favorite piece of, of Western classical music was Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. And Wes was like, well, let's use that. You know, oh, wow. And, so you're, somehow you're, you're it, doing that musicology. It's, it's that, somehow it worked. You yeah. know, I mean, that was that was that was just sort of a reward, I think, for 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 doing the the digging that we had done. So I want to ask a really mundane question here. Right. But because you're, you're talking about just the, the sheer amount you have to sort through, how many hours of music are you bringing back to kind of go through, you know, is, um, when you're when you're doing one of these projects? Well, a lot, you know, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of as as an example, when we were working on Grand Budapest Hotel um, and doing that early sort of musical exploration, um, neither Wes nor I are, I would say, are experts in classical music. Okay. And and so given the sort of the European setting and the sort of time frame of of the story, um we we set out to sort of gather and put together, you know, classical pieces from all the various locales and regions and and sort of the genres and subgenres of of sort of the European regional music. So whether it was classical or folk music or drinking songs or or marches or whatever it was, you know, we 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 put that all together for us to sort of and for Wes to be able to get a sense of okay, what did what does it sound like? What is what is what what might we utilize? And and in the course of doing that, that's when we landed on Bali Laika and, and sort of West made that commitment. Okay. That's going to be sort of the, the 
essential or the theft foundation of our musical element in the film. And really, that's his instinct and that's his genius and his confidence in terms of saying, okay, we're going to commit to that. So how do you start researching these relatively obscure genres like, you know, Eastern or or mid-century Eastern European marches or or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, you just sort of start, you know, you start somewhere and then and then take it from there. And then also is in terms of, you know, consultation, finding people who were experts in the genre or subgenre and sort of say, like, well, what's the best of this or best of that? Are, Are you calling like composers, professors, DJs? Yep. (laughs) <laughs> All the above. All the above. Record store owners. Yeah. You know, um, just whatever, wh- wherever there might be any window. Because also it's just something too is that it's not so much, it's not necessarily, although there is some kind of, there's the, certainly, there's a certain kind of academic approach to it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also, it's also to try to sort of mine people's passions, you know? So it's not so much like, what do you, you know, where you can actually even get personal with people saying, like, what's your favorite or what do you find to be the most exciting? Or even especially in situations where you're also trying to say, like, well, what is this? What are the most distinct recordings of a particular piece of music? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially with a classic, classical orchestral repertoire. Because you could have multiple versions of yeah. untold numbers yeah. of versions of or, that. You know, again, yeah. so it's sort of like at that point where you would could be paralyzed by 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 this sort of ocean of recordings you just have to sort of start somewhere you know and just start listening and just start yeah just start collecting how many people do you have helping you in this process um you know i would say in that process really it's kind of i mean i've always liked to kind of explore on my own really and Mm -hmm. discover it on my own um, but that being said, I mean, certainly, like I said, I, I consult and ask people to sort of give me their advice or their, you know, Bali like a desert island discs, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> whatever that would be or the equivalent of that. The, 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 the one guy who actually has yeah. that, that list yeah. somewhere in a drawer. Yeah. Um, when you're making the decisions about how to soundtrack a scene, are you often trying multiple songs on one scene to see what works best or is it usually you've got such a firm idea no i mean you definitely you definitely put different things to the picture to sort of see Mm -hmm. how they work sometimes sometimes you know a director has you know has a piece of music that they they're going to make it work in the sense of you know sometimes in 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 situations, you're just taking a scene and trying different pieces of music to that scene and sometimes editing the music to fit that scene. Other times, and is that th- there's th- the picture editorial is, is, is working in tandem with you. So the picture gets adjusted to sort of support the music as well, you know. So, I mean, sometimes you have a firm, you, you're set on, on, using a piece of music sometimes you discover that you know your preconception is is not sort of striking in the way that you were hoping or imagined and you make adjustments and again too is that it's exciting sometimes when you're surprised by something that you didn't imagine being the right piece but ultimately is the right piece what's the best way to learn a language immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, 
and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. I, I think one of the you know your most famous soundtracks is probably Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou at this point, right? Um, and it's for anyone who hasn't listened or hasn't seen the movie, it's uh, you know this series of David Bowie songs performed in Portuguese right. by Sway George. I'm curious how you and that's just it's not a traditional soundtrack, I, right? You know, how did that come about? So. Um... At that when when Wes was writing um, Life Aquatic, he was he was at that time he was here living in New York, and we used to meet on Sundays, and I would read the new pages as he was getting as the week's work was done, and and one Sunday um, there was a line in the script and it says Pele comes on deck and performs a David Bowie song in Portuguese, and that was really that 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 was that, that, was, that was the only that was the only mention of it in the in the in the script right. And, um, and then, you know, we, 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 we found, um, Sao George and, you know, saw, you know, we'd seen him in city of gods and we saw that he, he actually had the capacity to, to do this. And what we didn't know though, was how brilliant he was really and how his capacity to transform his instinctual capacity to transform David Bowie into Portuguese, which he really was not that familiar with with the David Bowie catalog. Really, he was he was learning much of it as as really? we were developing the idea. And I think that once Wes saw what he was capable of, or the depth and beauty of his renderings, you know, he said, "Oh, you know, the commitment was there to say, okay, well, look, let's do thirteen of the. I think it was thirteen songs that we ultimately did." And Wes would just sort of at each location would sort of say, okay, you know, at the end of the day, bring George up and let's do another one, you know, and that's how it sort of came together. Um, And really the work that was done was just to get him to actually make these sort of translation, do these translations and then practice them and learn them. So we recorded them so he would sort of work them out and then have them to practice with. Um, and then in the film, they're basically they're done live on on camera, and that's how that happened. I guess that kind of leads me to 
another question, which is how do you decide when you're going to be using, you know, pop songs, you know, pre-recorded music, and, and when do you say we need to put in a natural score? That's part of the process of, okay. of, of, of making a movie and, and, and sort of in process in post-production. You know, sometimes it's, you, 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 at a certain point, you have to sort of figure out, okay, what would this original music, the score, what would it sound like, you know, and mm-hmm. what's it really meant to do? And then there's a, a process where you go and you, what's called spotting is that you go through the movie and you say, okay, this is score goes here, score goes here, let's try some score here. You know, this is obviously a song moment. And then there are moments in terms of where work the music supervisor and the, and the composer might compete for a spot, you know, where you say, and it's not as, as, as sort of dastardly as that, but it's sort of like, you know, well, look, you know, a song might work here or it actually could be better served by a song. So let's see, let's, let's, let's try both and see, you know, see how then things work when we take a step back and sort of look at the, 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 the film in total or get a more comprehensive view of it. You know, sometimes a piece of music works when you look at a scene Mm-hmm. on its own and then when you look at it in in a longer run or in, when you watch the whole movie it's like you know what there's two the, the songs are beginning to knock against each other in a way that's unsettling or not satisfying or not great or mm-hmm. you know and and so it evolves you know sometimes a piece of music comes out it comes back you know you figure out you, you have a piece of music that all of a sudden you think it's this is really feels like our movie, but we need to find another place for it or not. Or there are songs that felt like our, felt like a movie, but just you never did find a place for it, you know? So your process with, with Wes is really um, deeply embedded in actual creation of the movie, right? Are there other directors who just sort of call you in at the end and say, you know, I have to, I have to add sound or add yeah, music? Yeah, I mean— you know, I would say over the course, I would say once a year, probably there's a movie that I get a call that they've been working on the music in the film and they just don't, they can't crack it or, mm-hmm. or it doesn't feel right. And, you know, I get invited in to try to help sort it out or help them land on a strategy. You're, you're the fixer at that point. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes what happens is that people just get really, they get too close to it or they can't see it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever have to like, you know, convince a director that they need to take out their like pet favorite from the movie yeah, or like something I, they've I been mean, wanting to put? Uh, yeah, in I mean, so, to, you know, in very, with varying degrees of success, you know, mm-hmm. but I think that that's something that I always say that, you know, people, most people think that they're really good drivers and most people think they have really good taste in music. Right. <laughs> and, and I think that people do have good taste in music but they sometimes can't see how a song is really impacting their story, you know? And, and it's like there, there are movies that I would say that I, I feel like, oh, the director is just using his favorite songs. And as much as they're important to him or vital to the storytelling or actually you, there are situations where you say like, oh, I, the, the director definitely has lived in this period of time and these were the songs that, he was listening, he or she was listening to at this specific moment of time. And so there's an authenticity to it, right? But it doesn't have, at least to my eyes and ears, doesn't have the emotional impact that they think that it's having, right? That Mm -hmm. it doesn't really work. And so sometimes you have to try to help referee a little bit and to, to varying degrees of success. I mean, 
sometimes you just can't, they can't get over it or they don't imagine that it really, that this vital and sacred piece of music isn't doing everything that they want it to be doing in their story. It sounds like it's as personal to some directors as, as parts of the script, really. Well, I, I just think it's even more well, personal. Because they're not always it, writing the script it, even. Or because it's just like this is the music that they, you know, it's it's an undeniably great piece of music. And also I think sometimes is what happens is that people, you know, they they put a really important piece of music onto a scene and they feel like, oh, my story is being either validated or elevated by this particular piece of music and sometimes it can just overwhelm the movie like they don't understand that like you know yes the the beatles are great but you can't carry it you're not it's 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 sitting on your head you know it's it's not allowing the audience to sort of get into your story is that problem sort of when the music is better than the movie it's sometimes some yeah sometimes sometimes it's because the, the the movie hasn't just doesn't deserve it really and then sometimes it's just at least again i mean this is all debatable and sometimes it's a matter of taste but it's just sometimes it's just not right yeah i want to talk about scorsese because he's a guy who was probably one of the first directors to really make right you know the music a central part of his sort of vision um And he'd been doing it for years, and you've worked with him on, I think, Wolf of Wall Street and Silence. I, I worked with, I, I, I started working with him on a movie called The Aviator. Okay. Um, and and really, I would say that, you know, in terms of, and and what you've said is absolutely correct. I mean, all of us of a certain age were all completely influenced by Mean Streets and the use of songs in Mean Streets, and still, it's just still such a, a knockout. Yeah. And. My role really in terms of initially with Marty was just in where there are period pieces, you know, in terms of the aviator of doing there was a lot of on camera music and we were in three decades. And so there was a lot of organization that had to get done in terms of finding the songs that we were going to do, how we were going to treat them in terms of how how to make songs, how to create a musical dynamic that that sort of distinguished the thirty, the twenties, the thirties, and the forties. You know, so that was sort of what that that was initially how we came together, worked doing that, and, and and where music supervision also involves like casting musicians and rehearsing on camera bands and recording and you know doing all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. that that was sort of our point of contact. So it's that combination researcher and manager that you're in well yeah and and also just get having a sense of uh, having being the a, a person who then the director can talk to about the contours of these different musical contours of these different eras and becoming aware of the characters the musical characters of those specific times yeah so you can say okay you know we're we're, we're going to be able to talk about uh Russ Colombo or whoever is sort of the, the a musical icon of that specific time and place, you know, where the film was set largely in at points in, in Hollywood and the Hollywood big bands and who was playing at the Coconut Grove in 1920 or 1930, you know. Yeah. And so, and, which is really, I mean, a tremendous amount of fun, you know. I guess I'm interested in how working with him has been different than, say, directors like Wes or Richard Linklater, just because he just does bigger movies too, it seems like well, now. I mean, they're more blockbusters. So I'm, I'm curious, how does the music element 
play into the production of a I film? Think it's, I think it's more, I mean, I think there are probably more similarities than differences, really, okay. in the sense that I think that if you look at Wes or Marty or Todd Haynes or Linkletter, it's just they're sort of relentless in their pursuit of emotional impact and using music to set you know, to to deliver emotionally and to sort of support their stories. And so I think that, you know, their commitment to filmmaking and to storytelling and to excellence is is sort of the commonality. And so you just keep going, you keep working, you keep digging, you keep trying to see if you can unearth something that might really surprise them surprise an audience and yet deliver to, to help deliver the story it's always it's always about the telling the story yeah. you know and that's what music really is doing in these movies when it's working at its best it's it's another element that that works with every with everything else to sort of set your story emotionally and setting time and place really have you ever had to tell marty that a song just was not working that he had to um, skip the Rolling Stones track? No, or... <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that, I mean, we ha- I mean, it's more like where we talk about when we're trying to figure out which songs to use or mm-hmm. especially which songs to record, you know, that where I will make, you know, if I, if I have a particular passion for something where, I, where that becomes clear, you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully the people that you work with appreciate your passion, you know, mm-hmm. for, for things. So it's not like, it's, it's not so much about telling somebody that they're wrong as much as saying, I think that we should listen to this piece again, maybe, or let's, how do we incorporate this piece? Or this feels to me like this, somehow we have to do something with this piece of music, you know? And mm-hmm. thankfully, we connect musically in, in the course of, of getting the things together. But really, it, it's, you know, again, it's also the point is like sometimes music, you don't want it to be jumping out of the story. It needs to be heard within the context of the story. And that's why sometimes like you'll work on a movie and look, sometimes I work on movies that don't necessarily succeed as much as you would, you hope or want, but that people say, oh, you know, oh yeah, the music was the best part of the movie. It's like, oh, that's like, it's not really, that's not really great news, you know, because it's sort of, it shouldn't, sometimes, sometimes the best music supervision is when they sort of don't, they don't really even notice the music and it just sort of like, just felt like it was just there, you know? Yeah. So, so we've been talking about the the creative end of all this. Mm-hmm. How much of your time is spent on that on the on the gathering and researching and and trying out music, and how much is just negotiating rights and haggling over you know royalties and things like that? That's well, part of your responsibility too. Yeah, I mean it's it's a hundred percent of each. I think really. <laughs> It's very rare that there's complete carte blanche in terms of being able to afford all the music that you might want to use, you know? What's the typical budget you have for a movie? Or well, like it, do, it doesn't. It, there a is, percentage of like a, a movie's... I wish, I, wish, I wish that there would be such a thing that, pe- that we abided by. You know, the one thing about the musical element is that it's the last money that goes out when you're making a movie. And so everything tends to cost more so they they sort of rob you and over the course of the movie yeah or they underestimate because Mm -hmm. they just need to get a green light you know to make the movie and so they say look we all know we don't have enough money for music and then there tends to be sort of industrial amnesia where it's like well wait a second we why are you going over budget we don't know (laughs) so and again it's sort of like with in terms of musical costs in terms of licensing for pre-existing music there really is no blue book, right? So it, there's nothing there. We say, oh, okay, um, 
Grooven by the Rascals costs X amount, you know, and you're paying both for the composition and for the recording. So every, it tends to be where every song, for the most part, there's some sort of personal element where you have to sort of get into it. And, you know, that's where I do get help is that, that, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have to do all the paperwork or do all the legal work or do at least the initial negotiations because you go out and you make a request and then they come back and they say, okay, we want X amount. And then mm-hmm. I have to look at it and then say, okay, that seems like that'll, we can make that work. And then sometimes it's about, look, I got to, I have to get in there and say, look, I need to, I need to reduce this cost or else I can't have this song or I'm not going to be able to afford any other songs or whatever is the, the financial contingencies. Mm-hmm. So I spent a good amount of time doing that. Um, but then again, I mean, that's that's the job, really. So you have to understand that you not only have to be able to find the perfect song, but you have to then be able to sort of deliver it. What was the hardest negotiation you've ever had for a song? You know, I, I don't know that I could pinpoint one or, or two of those situations. I mean, sometimes you just have situations where two guys in a band hate each other, you know, and they don't want one doesn't want the other one to make any money. And so that he won't approve it or you know, complications like that where you sort of have to make make nice to people or figure out ways to get things done. I mean, what's complicated, what becomes complicated in this day and age is I've just finished a movie called Superfly that's opening, mm-hmm. uh, that is opening tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, opening seen, tomorrow. I've seen the Superfly, ads for it. Superfly, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that, you that's, know. That's a musical legacy to live up to. Right. Right. Well, it's 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 that's well, that's a music a movie that it's sort of it's set in contemporary Atlanta. So yeah. we, it wasn't like we were we were remaking the period. Yeah, you're not. Um, you're, you're not and, redoing Curtis. And, yeah, and and so you know, in in sort of urban music and rap music, hip hop, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. where there has been people are sampling, and sometimes you, you know it becomes complicated because there's an uncleared sample, or that you don't you're made aware of an uncleared sample. Um, you discover what the other guy did wrong. Well, I, or or that you sort of realize that there's something in there that you need to account for. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes complicated. Are there some genres that you're much more comfortable in than others? I try not to be. I mean, again, it's sort of like it was really fun and exciting to work on Superfly, to sort of live in the world of Atlanta trap music for yeah. eight months. So, I mean, I'm always up for revelation and up for educating myself mm-hmm. and digging deep into a genre. So, you know, I hope not. I hope I, I hope I can keep myself fortified that I can take on any sort of musical element. I guess I get really I would say honestly the world that I feel less least comfortable in is the world of classical music really that is something where I just it's I really have to really really work hard to sort of keep my bearings is that just because you you spend less time listening to it or because there's sort of the you know I guess the history or pressure around it well I mean there's so it's it's so deep you know and and again I just don't have it wasn't music that I really listened to growing up so I don't you know, I would say really, I mean, I'm more of a pop music has, mm-hmm. has really been and rock music has always been the world that I live in most regularly. Yeah, I, I actually I want to go back to to trap for a second. So how okay. how did you how did you dive in for Superfly? How What was your process of, of investigating that? Um, the world? Well, you know, I mean, some of I mean, I wasn't completely unaware of it, you know, um, and Atlanta is such a hub for it, really. Yeah. Um, and then it's sort of, you know, I had a, a 
uh, some people at the record company that put the soundtrack out who sort of live in that world and publishers and other record labels and artists management would once we knew that they, they knew we were doing this were putting it in front of me you yeah. know and and so you know if you spend a couple of days and nights feasting on it you you, you can get your bearings you know how, how much of it was just you sitting in front of soundcloud and how much of it was people just bringing you stuff you know both all of that and yeah. again too i mean there's there's so much of, i mean what's unique about what i found that was really unique about it was that there's an event record that's coming out that comes out every day really and and it's so uh, the, these artists are so prolific and guesting on each other's records that, and you kind of see, okay, like the same names keep popping up or, you know, even things like where if you're on one of these Instagram feeds of a hip hop rap, you know, whatever it is, a cultural hub in three days, you sort of see which names keep coming up and who's collaborating with who. And we see, oh, okay, here's this very, uh, uh, credible artist. Like if he's acknowledging a young up and coming, yeah artist then you know that that there's some that's something to he try got, to pay he got a guess first that's something to pay attention guys. to yeah. yeah i mean again it's it's so much stuff with mixtapes and soundcloud yeah. but you just you have to try to look at go at it with as both a scholar and an athlete you know <laughs> how much pressure do you feel to kind of stay current with your own personal music listening yeah uh, quite a bit yeah quite a bit how but, do you wh- what do you i mean are you listening to the radio or are you listening to spotify all, what are you all, listening to? all of it all of it yeah. All of it, all of it. And consultation. And again, sometimes, I, I mean, I get to lose myself in a world of 1920s jazz or whatever. That sort of becomes my sort of primary, that becomes my musical habit of, mm-hmm. at the moment. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of... Is that because you were working for a movie? Well, or yeah, for say, when I was working on Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, and, you know, I'll digest music by any means possible, you know? So whether it's looking at the charts on Apple Music or whether it's, again, websites, journals, magazines, mm-hmm. following critics on facebook asking people you know um and then and again and then sort of seeing what kind of heat you're getting from labels and publishers in terms of what they're pushing or who they're who they're who who you're you know sometimes you'll get a record from three different sources and you know i guess that's something that then you figure out you maybe need to pay attention to it i'm kind of curious is you just mentioned about records coming away from people is it easier to get bands and artists to do soundtracks or, or commercials now than it was maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago when yeah. people were making more money off CDs and there was still right. sort of this idea of selling out then. That seems to have kind of faded. I mean, yeah. it is simpler. Uh, well, it's it, it. there's certainly more openness to it. And, mm-hmm. and I think that really that people see films and, t- and TV maybe even more emphatically is that it's almost like film and TV placements are kind of like being on the radio really and there's so much television that's happening yeah that really that becomes a a, a a primary platform for artists to reach an audience so the netflix boom is also sort of a a, a recording industry boom as well i think so yeah i mean again it's it's a music supervision boom really. yeah i mean it's it's in terms of how many people are out there saying that they're super you know their music supervisors, I mean, has has grown has grown exponentially in the last 10, 15 years, uh, 10 years, five years. And the, I guess, does that mean more competition for you or is that just because there are too many damn projects for everyone um, to handle? Probably both. Yeah. You know, probably both. One of the things about 
the Wes Anderson soundtracks I think everyone loves is that you, you're, you've always been really good at finding sort of fairly obscure gems, right? Right. Does it feel like it's gotten harder to do that with how easily accessible music is now? Well, um, to, I guess, be a little bit of a hipster? <laughs> well, I, you know, look, I would say that, you know, music has, has, has been, music has been, the most sort of abiding passion of my life really, because as much as, as long and as much as I've been digging, you always uncover something else, you know, at at least that's been how it's gone to this point really. So I think that you're always going to discover undervalued musical pieces, you know, and you certainly have more access to it because of the internet really than ever before. I think that the challenge is that there, there's so much people are using music or songs in you know, there's so many, if you watch television, commercial tele, broadcast television, see commercials, you know, how many songs are being used in spots and how many songs are being used on these TV shows is that you have to be somewhat careful or aware of the fact that certain songs may have really powerful associations with people prior to your using them. So that's challenging. I mean, how do you even, how do you even try to figure that out? You don't, you can't really. I mean, it's sort of like the question that you get a lot is like, oh, has this been in anything else? And sort of the answer is like, well, you have to assume yes, that it's been in, in something else because I, to your point, I don't know every TV show and I don't know every commercial that's happening, you know, and sort of as a rule of thumb there is like, well, then you better, it better be great. Because if you, if you, I guess my position on that is like, if you use something and it's really great, and when I mean great, like breathtaking, powerfully great, you will own it, right? Regardless of who else has used it or is using it. Mm -hmm. And that may be debatable, but that's sort of how, that's an operating procedure. And then there's some things where, you know, again, things that have been in so many things that it just sort of, you, you kind of, it has no impact and it's like you become completely numb to it. You know, so is there a song that you think should just be banned from soundtracks at this point? Uh, I don't know. I can't. I, I won't be able to come <laughs> up with one, and I don't want to insult anybody. And then I'll want to use. Uh, then I'll want to use it. What is your favorite musical moment from a film that you were not involved in? One that just made you think, "Damn, that's great." Yeah, I, I guess. Um, you know, what just immediately jumped into mind was the way that Paul Thomas Anderson used Jesse's Girl in Boogie Nights. I guess that that was a pretty remarkable one for me. The great filmmakers, they're just they're just fearless in the way that they use it, you know, and they play it loud and they really they really commit to it. They commit to the musical moment. Um, so that, that would be that was just one that came into mind. Are there ever points where you find that directors actually really don't care about the music or is that just something that is never a, a, a problem? No, I mean, it's sometimes you find that the director, again, not every movie is a Spike Lee joint, so to speak. You know, not every movie is a, you know, is the most elevated undertaking. You know, sometimes the movie's just like a, you have you have hope for a movie and it just doesn't turn out well, you know. And so sometimes you find yourself with directors who you're like not really that happy to be working with or don't really have an instinct or respect for it or the touch or the taste. And you sort of do the best you can and you try to use sort of logic and music to sort of push you, push things through. 
And sometimes you just can't, you know, and they just can't embrace it. And that can be very disappointing and that can make the work seem really like work and be less joyful and less satisfying. And that just sort of comes with the territory, you know, that not everything is is akin to working with Wes or Marty or Sam Mendes or, you know, not every situation is as is as satisfying or as elevated as others. And you just sort of do your, do the best you can. And sometimes it just is not good enough. What's your favorite musical moment that you've put on film? You know, I, I, I won't answer that question really. I mean, I would say that it's really something that I'm working on now, you know, that I, that, that I get excited about. I mean, you know, it's really fun. I mean, another director, a, a younger director who I really admire a lot and who I, I hope to work with forever is a guy named Antonio Campos, who I worked with him on a movie uh, a year or so ago called Christine. And we were looking for something in a sequence. We were playing through a lot of stuff. And we played this song called Laughing by the Guess Who, which happened to be the first single I ever bought, you know. And so we used it in a scene and we, Antonio worked really hard to create a mom- moments of musical emphasis in the sequence. And that was really great fun and exciting to to sort of see now live in film in a film forever. So that was really rewarding. You know, I, the one thing yeah. I do want to say, though, oh, if, yeah? I, if I can just say, is that people, you know, when people say, oh, the music fair, you're the person that picks the songs in the movie. And I never say that, you know, it really is like if I'm just picking the songs in the movie, it does not speak well for the the process because it really is the, a director who really it's like for me, the most fun is having a director or an editor or the producer to work with in terms of coming together and choosing music for the film. So, I mean, that is really the great joy of the task is sort of being connected to your collaborators. This has been a lot of fun chatting. Okay, good. Uh, it was great having Thank you here. You. Likewise. Thanks yeah. for having me. You've been listening to Working. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Um, and if you have questions, comments, thoughts, as always, send us an email at working at slate.com. We've been getting a few from listeners, and I've been responding to them, and I promise I will respond to yours. As always, I want to thank my producer, without whom the show would just not be possible, Jessamine Molly, and also a shout out to Justin D. Wright, who not only is responsible for our ad music, but also helped us get in touch with Randall for this week's interview. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and I hope you join us next time. Thank you.